Happy Stimulus Sunday Pursuit. Glad to have you in the house of the Lord this morning. I saw my direct deposit. I said, I will bless the Lord at all times. 50 trillion in debt, but what's another, what's another 10 trillion? Hey, this morning, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series called The Exodus, and we're going to take the next number of weeks leading up into Easter to talk about Exodus, not as a book, but as an event. We know that Exodus is the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament. The person of Moses, we traditionally believe, writes the first five books called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And starting in the book of Exodus, Moses tells us a story of how God's people came out of bondage into the wilderness and eventually into their inheritance. Moses in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ. He is a shadow that later Christ will complete. There are several figures like that in the Old Testament. Moses is one of them. David is another. Ruth is another. Rahab is another. And by shadow, we mean like a messianic prophetic picture of part of the ethic and character that Christ in perfection will complete. Moses is considered the greatest prophet in Old Testament history. He, he is born into Pharaoh's kingdom. He is not a son of Pharaoh, but he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and is raised in that system for 40 years. In fact, when you think about the life of Moses, it can be divided into 40-year segments, 40 years living in Pharaoh's palace. At the age of 40, there's an exchange that he has with an Egyptian taskmaster where Moses' anger is moved as he sees one of his fellow brethren being abused and he kills an Egyptian taskmaster and doing so runs out into the wilderness and spends 40 years working for his father-in-law tending sheep. And as Moses thinks his life is over, he's tending sheep one day and all of a sudden there is a bush that is burning in front of him, yet it is not consumed. And from the fire, a voice speaks and says, Moses, I am sending you back to the place of injury and to the place of pain, but this time not as a victim, but as a victor. And friend, that is the message of Christ for this hour, that God redeems what the enemy has tried to destroy. What the canker worm has eaten, God himself repays. For every ounce of damage that the enemy has done in the Northwest, God is now preparing and equipping his church to do violence against darkness. And upon the revelation that Jesus is Lord, the church is built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm here to tell you today that there is more to Christianity than mere observation. God has invited you to participate in what I think will be the greatest move and the greatest harvest our world has ever seen. And the reason I think that is because I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. And I'm telling you, we're going to see a move of God in our region that for a hundred years people have only ever prayed for. And you and I are a part of this thing together. And if you're sitting on the sidelines or the margins. There has never been a better time to get involved. Why? Because the church of God is advancing by force. 
It advances in the midst of persecution. It advances in the midst of harassment and intimidation. It advances in the midst of war and conflict and pestilence and plague. The church of Jesus Christ advances. And the church primarily exists to glorify Jesus. And I know we do a lot of good things and we're involved in a lot of good outreach and a lot of good programs. But the church primarily exists to anoint the feet of Jesus, to minister to him, to bring his kingdom to earth, and in doing so, see transformation in our culture. It's not just enough for us to get excited on Sunday. We are living for a transformation and a reformation in the Northwest. And I promise you, we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. For what God begun, he's faithful to finish and he's not done yet. Uh, I, would, I, I would imagine that, that there are some of you here this morning who've been waiting to grab a hold of a message just like this. You've been waiting for the invitation of the ages to be a part of something that is more than just a, a weekly checkoff on a spiritual chart. It's more than just a gathering of people to complain about how terrible their week has been, but it is a gathering of God's redeemed who tell their story about being more than conquerors for we are in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, life isn't easy but it is worth it when you follow him. And the church ought to find its prophetic voice in this season. For if not now, then when? And if not us, then, then who? God has primed this world's moment for the church to rise to the occasion, to be the very thing that he has asked us to be. We are lampstands set on pillars that Jesus himself walks in between. That's the picture that John has in the book of Revelation. I'm telling you, friend, we're not just worshiping Jesus from afar, but as we invite him, as we invoke his presence, he walks amongst us. And wherever Jesus walks, transformation follows. And I don't know about you, but when I close my eyes, it's almost as if I hear his footsteps in this city. It's almost as if I hear the lion of the tribe of Judah who's about to roar over the Northwest. It's almost as if I hear that our best days are not behind us, but ahead of us. And friend, if you have a word from God to be in the Northwest, I'm gonna encourage you to be a part of this movement because it's bigger than a spiritual moment. It's an invitation to be a part of something so much bigger than us. So much bigger than just one house, so much bigger than just one voice or one set of gifting, but with eyes focused on Jesus, believing that he is walking through every area of death and dysfunction in this community and turning it around. It encourages us to be a part of the great movement of freedom in this year. I'm telling you, it has never been a better time to be alive. Egypt wasn't just a place, hear me, it was a system a system of thought, patterns, expectations, habits, bondage, and affliction. It came to represent the very thing that God came to rescue people out of. Egypt wasn't just a place of, of physical slavery, but mental, emotional, and spiritual bondage that held God's people back for 400 years. Friend, if you get one thing to get today, get this. You can get out of Egypt, but until Egypt gets out of you, you can't experience the fullness of God's freedom. Egypt was a system that impacted the mindset of an entire generation. By the time that Moses led God's people out of captivity, there was close to 3 million of them. And for 40 years, God showed signs and wonders in the wilderness. For 40 years, he was faithful when they were faithless. Why? Because when sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And even when we're prone to wander, he's prone to 
search and he searched out for a people who would know him by name. And he showed a cloud and he showed a fire and a pillar and manna that came from heaven all to prove this, that when we're at our worst, he's at his best. And this Exodus is not just a book, but it's an event. And it's not just an event, but it's a spiritual state. And I believe it communicates something of grand importance to you and I this morning. Let's start in Exodus 6, starting in verse 6. The Bible says this. Therefore, this is God speaking, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God and I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Watch, I will give it as a possession to you for I am the Lord. Now Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. This is God communicating to Moses, to the people, that he will give them the inheritance promised to their forefathers. The Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in their day, receiving a land of their own, cities of their own, inheritances of their own. It was this promise of great magnitude, of great depth. It should have encouraged everyone who had a listening ear, but the Bible says that these people couldn't receive that type of promise because of their discouragement and their harsh labor. Friend, God can't rescue what you won't recognize. The Israelites' discouragement robbed them of the ability to trust God for a better future. How do I know if I'm operating under a spirit of encouragement? Every time someone presents a solution, I find a problem. I'd rather stay sick, stay broke, stay mad than accept an invitation to come up higher. I lose the ability to hear and believe the report of the Lord. Come on, isn't this the question in the Old Testament as they're searching for the promised land? Who has believed the report of the Lord? Will we be the people? who believes what God says to be true about this region. We are overly informed by culture and we are underly informed by the Father and we wonder why we got the condition that we've got today. It's time to believe, accept, and confess that our best days are not behind us but ahead of us and the Northwest is on a collision course with the move of God. And Moses had to convince the people they were actually slaves. Because until people recognize the depravity of their own condition, it's hard to offer them a lifeline to something better. It's the same reason Jesus would ask, do you want to be made well? Seems like a foolish question for the Messiah to ask those who are obviously sick and infirmed. But the truth is some of us have become so accustomed to our bondage, our illness, and our dysfunction that we don't know how to live without it. I know it's unhealthy. I know it doesn't help me. I know it always drags me back to old life and old patterns and old flesh and old mindset. But pastor, if I were to be honest, I don't know how to live without it. And Jesus, addressing the heart of the matter, asked this question, well, do you really want to be made well? And I'm here to tell you Moses is fighting three battles all at once. The first is the external battle against the unbelief of the people. The second is the spiritual battle against the demonic resistance of Pharaoh. 
And the third is the internal battle of feeling not qualified for the task at hand. And you must be prepared as a believer in this season to win in all three places in order to have total victory in your life. See, I fight on these fronts, three, these, these three fronts every day. I'm fighting to bring this community with me in faith. I'm fighting to dismantle principalities and powers in this region. I'm fighting to maintain a sense of sanity and confidence knowing that God is gonna finish what he started and he's not done yet. Do you know that we are coming against generational strongholds that have plagued the Northwest for many years? We're coming against a strong man of discouragement. We're coming against a principality of depression and anxiety and stress and infirmity. And when I get involved in warfare, prayer and worship, I feel our church coming up against those old habits and patterns. And the reason we worship the way that we do is because we enter into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. And when you're in the court of the king, you can conduct the business of the kingdom. We've got too many Christians trying to conduct kingdom business, but they're not even in the court. And you don't get into the court until you come in with thanksgiving and praise. Worship takes us high to do the business of heaven. And in doing so, when we bind it there, it's bound here. And when we loose it there, it's loose here. See, that's why it don't matter how anointed the preaching is, we need anointed worship. We need worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, not on this mountain or on that mountain, but in the fullness of God's presence. I think today we got a lot of spirit-filled churches in name only. You show up dry, you leave drier. You show up dead, you leave deader. You show up sick, you leave more sick. Show up depressed, you leave more depressed. I'm here to tell you today, if you came in heavy, you can leave light. If you came in with a yoke of bondage, you can leave with an anointing that breaks the yoke. If you came in with darkness, you can leave light. If you came in with poverty, you can leave with resource. Let it be done unto you according to your faith. We're gonna be people of faith. That's what I do when I preach. I'm trying to provoke a faith response in your life because I can't receive on your behalf and you can't live vicariously through my spiritual vitality. You gotta get it on your own. But I'm here to provoke you to believe that God has placed a mandate on your life for this season. You need a word from God to live in the Northwest. It's expensive. It's a culture that seems to go against everything that we preach. It rains 97 months out of the year. <laughs> the fact that God would be stirring something of spiritual value in this region tells me, number one, God has a sense of humor, and number two, he's got a place in his heart for small cities, and number three, what he's going to do next is not going to be to the glory of man, but to the glory of God our Father, and when every eye sees it, they're going to know it's not the brilliance of the pursuit, it's the brilliance of Jesus made manifest in the yeah, freedom looks like something. I got to preach here. I, we, okay, running out of time. Freedom looks like something. Watch, when God sent Moses back, it came with a fourfold mandate for the Israelites. Can I tell you, nothing begins to happen until God first sends a person. Watch what Paul says in Romans 10. He says, then how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How they shall they believe in him who they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? 
In fact, the root understanding, definition of the word apostle in the New Testament means sent once. We need people in this house who operate with a word from God that says, I've been sent here in due season on purpose to be a contributor to the kingdom effort. A lot of observers. A lot of sideline commentators. You know what I've found? The loudest voices come from the cheapest seats. When you're engaged in the work at hand, you don't have a whole lot of time for a lot of different opinions on one way or another. You're just lucky to have a seat at the table. Man, I feel lucky to have a seat at the table every day, but I know we've been sent here on purpose. And friend, if you're sitting here today, I would dare to believe that God sent you here with purpose as well. It's not just divine incident or accident. There's over 6,000 churches in Washington State. Why on earth are you gonna remodel JCPenney in a city that is incredibly difficult to get to? And even more difficult to pronounce. Because God sent you here for such a time as this. Because we are coming into something that is exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. And the overflow on this house is not just for you. It's for your children and your children's children. Yeah, your inheritance and your posterity would rise up to call you blessed. That's what we're pressing into. It's not just a conference and we're going to have one. It's going to be great. It's not just a weekend. We have good weekends here. It is a generational cascading inheritance of revival and reformation. That's what we need. What you think is going to keep your young children and young people in church. Not dry, dead, boring religion, but a living Jesus with power to change their lives. And we've sold people on a powerless gospel and we've called it intellectualism. We've sold people on a powerless faith and we've called it caution and order. And Jesus is interested in blowing up every single one of your boxes because the lamb who was slain will receive the inheritance of his suffering. There's a fourfold mandate for freedom that God declares to Pharaoh in light of the Egyptian bondage. It's gonna come up here on the screen here in a minute. Number one is this. Moses speaking to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we a sacrifice to the Lord our God. You'll notice a pattern, Exodus 5 and verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go that we may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Exodus 8 and verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Exodus 9 and verse 13, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Friend, the first thing that Egypt steals is your generosity. The second thing that Egypt steals is your time. The third thing that Egypt steals is your service. And the fourth thing Egypt steals is your worship. And when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, he said, the Lord God is saying to you, let my people go, that they would return to me a debt of gratitude that they owe in the following four areas. 
When I think about this story, I think about a people who've been enslaved 400 years. Their wealth has been stolen. Their economic labor has been kidnapped. They have been held as hostages by an evil dictator who refuses to let them go. They started out as friends of Pharaoh and ended up as slaves under Pharaoh. And for 400 years, they have lived in abject poverty. And yet the first thing that Moses says is this, let my people go that we may go sacrifice to the Lord our God. Friend, once your generosity leaves, so does your gratitude and thankfulness. Without thanksgiving and praise, you can't enter into his courts. Every time that I engage in generosity, I'm making a statement. I don't fear poverty because God is my provider. Every time I engage in generosity, I'm declaring my God will supply everything that I'm in need of. I think oftentimes people fall into the lie. I'll give when I have more. I'll give when I'm not in debt. I'll give when I get a raise. Friend, you will never have enough to give until you make a decision to start where you're at. In fact, you can't afford not to give. Now, you might have been at a church where every time a pastor talked about finances, they took a special offering. We don't do special offerings here. Giving is not by manipulation, but by invitation. But I'm inviting you into the canopy of God's blessing for your life. Because until the spirit of poverty and the spirit of mammon is broken off of your resource, it doesn't matter how much you put in your bucket. You got a hole on the bottom and it will never be enough. And these people have been in bondage 400 years. They've been broke 400 years. They haven't been able to pass on an inheritance to their children for 400 years. And Moses shows up and the first thing he says is let my people go that we may go sacrifice to the Lord in the wilderness. Don't you think they've sacrificed enough? But how many times do we fall into that mindset ourselves? God, don't you think I've sacrificed enough? God, don't you see all the things that I've given, all the times that I've worked, all the things that I've done in secret that nobody ever thanked me for? God, don't you think that I've given enough? And here's what I found to be true, at least about my own spiritual journey, and I would imagine it's true about yours as well. When my sacrifice stops, so does my spiritual progress. I'm not even talking about money. I'm talking about Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. A living sacrifice never gets off of the altar because the altar is where the fire falls. And sometimes we ask for fire, but we haven't yet first brought a sacrifice. If in him I live and move and have my being, if even as our poets say we are his offspring, then for the rest of my life, I could give everything that I've ever had to the work of the kingdom, to the ministry of Christ, and still never even scratch the surface of what he's given to me. And I think for us, as we think about what it means to get Egypt out of our wealth, to get Egypt out of our blessing, to get Egypt out of our mindset, it comes with a decision to live a life of generosity. Malachi 3.10 says this, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Watch what God says. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. We all love the last part of verse 10. Give me the blessing that's too much. But blessings don't come without obedience. 
and is one of the few places in scripture that God ever invites us to test him in something. Friend, giving isn't about you helping the church. It's about God freeing you from mammon. Hear me, giving is not about you helping us pay for this building. Giving is about freeing your mind, your family, and your influence from the principality of mammon. We live in one of the wealthiest places, not just in the nation, but in the world. And the God that most people serve is mammon. And yet, like Jesus says in the New Testament, no man can serve two masters. He will either serve God and reject mammon, or he will serve mammon and reject God. Oh, it's okay to have money, but as soon as money has you, you've come into an Egyptian bondage that God has asked you to break. It's not just that Egypt steals your generosity. It's that Egypt steals your time. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. They said, let my people go that they may hold a festival unto me. In the New Testament, there's a word that's used to describe divine moments of time. And that Greek word is kairos. It means an appointed time, a proper time, a favorable time. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the time of the harvest. The word used there is kairos. In Matthew 16, talking about the return of the Lord, Scripture uses the term, the sign of the times. That word kairos is used once again. It's not about how many hours you have in the day, for we all have the same allotted amount of time. It's what you do in kairos moments, windows of opportunity. Friend, this is a kairos moment for the church. I believe God will accomplish more in the next six months than we've accomplished in the last six years. And that's why I'm petitioning you to go all in on Jesus because this is a divine window of time. See, what the world saw as a setback, God saw as a setup for the church to come back in greater power. This is our time. <laughs> I don't have time for, 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 for the garment of heaviness because he's given me a garment of praise. I don't have time for negative thinking and pessimistic outlooks and nihilistic type worldviews. The worst days are ahead of us. Can you even imagine? No, we are victors in Christ Jesus. There has never been an opportunity like we have now. And my gut is that so many in the church are sitting back wringing their hands about the nastiness or negativity of the world. But friend, you can curse the darkness all you want, but let's at the pursuit turn on a light. And let's be a light set on a hill for all men to see. Let's be a lighthouse in the Northwest that beckons ships to come in safe to harbor. Let's be a signpost that points to Jesus. Let's be those type of people in this Kairos moment of time. See, the opportunity of a lifetime only exists during the lifetime of the opportunity. It's like people talk about things like Bitcoin or Amazon stock. I wish I would have known what it would have been like now and I would have invested back then. But don't be like the foolish virgins who don't have the oil of awakening in their lamps because I'm here to tell you the bridegroom cometh and he might look late to you, but he's right on time to the father and I'm not missing my hour of awakening. It's coming and you and I ought to be ready. See, I serve God with my treasure, but I also serve God with my time. I'm not a Fairweather fan. I'm not just sitting in the seats watching somebody else perform, pretending it was me. 
Now I'm engaged in the fight of a lifetime. And we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Every Monday through Wednesday, our, our staff team gathers for prayer. and We pray in this old chapel here in Snohomish called Bell Chapel. It's 135 years old. It was a Methodist church planted in 1886. It's the oldest church building in the city. I was praying in staff prayer just a few weeks ago. And just, you know how sometimes you're in prayer and you feel like the Lord will just drop things on you, drop things in your heart. You'll get a confirming witness in your spirit. During prayer, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and he said, Russell, you will not realize how special these days are until one day when you're old and gray and you look back and recognize the uniqueness of this moment. Can I give you a caution? Jacob in Genesis 28, the Bible says that he fell asleep and he had a dream and he saw a ladder. We refer to it as Jacob's ladder. And he saw angels ascending and descending. And when he woke up, Jacob uttered one of the most devastating sentences in all of scripture. He said, God was in this place and I didn't know it. Let me give you a warning. Don't wake up on the tail end of this encounter and think to yourself, man, God was in that place and I didn't know it. I know what happens when you sit here on a Sunday. I know that my preaching and our worship and the spiritual engagement can tend to be abrasive. But friend, I'm here to tell you, let the Spirit do that work because he is here to comfort the afflicted. But for the American church, more often than not, he has to afflict the comfortable. And we allow that spirit to do that type of work inside of us. And we leave here challenged and encouraged that this is our time. It's not just that Egypt tries to steal your generosity. It's not just that Egypt steals your time. Egypt tries to steal your service. The third thing Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. Here's the problem. We get so busy being busy that we create an artificial sense of importance that ends up insulating us from this reality. Busyness has become the drug of choice for the American Christian. And while we're busy being important, we're missing out on the most important things. I'm not just here to consume. I'm here to participate in the gospel initiative because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. <laughs> Somebody I know attempted to criticize me a number of weeks ago. They said, Russell, you're giving the best years of your life to the church. I said, what a privilege. I'll be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. I'll be a bathroom cleaner in the house of the Lord. I'll be a chair arranger in the house of the Lord. Just let me gaze upon his beauty. Let me inquire in his temple in my time of trouble. Let him hide me under his pavilion. Let me gaze on the brilliant one. I'll be a doorkeeper. I'll be a greeter in the foyer. Just let me gaze upon his beauty. See, the church has ceased to become a place of beauty. And so people come and they end up being bored with a God they barely know. But when you turn your attention to heaven in this place, I hope something grips your heart. The beauty and the brilliance of God on full display. See, I'll disappoint you. 
I will. And the closer you get to me, the more you'll see my humanity. And the church will disappoint you. And sometimes nobody will say happy birthday to you when it's your birthday or send you a card when you end up in the hospital or give you a call when you end up busting your knee. And you'll have a choice to make in those moments. Am I a part of a church to be babysat until I die? Or am I a part of a community that is so enthralled with the brilliance and the beauty of God that even when I'm injured, I don't lose my focus? That's what I'm inviting you to be a part of. The one thing that we seek, the thing that we ask for, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. It's not just that Egypt steals our wealth. It's not just that Egypt tries to steal our time. It's not just that Egypt tries to steal our service, but the fourth and last thing that Egypt steals is our worship. And that's why when Moses declares to Pharaoh, let my people go, he says this, that they may worship me in the wilderness. Freedom looks like something. And when God sent Moses, hear me, it came with a mandate to reverse every sphere of bondage that enslaved the Hebrew children. Can I tell you that your moment of injury, that area of dysfunction in your life, that issue with generational sin or weakness, it serves as an opportunity for God's strength to be manifested and for victory to come in fullness in your life. See, it might have ran in your family, but now it's run into you and you've got a choice to make. You might have come from generations of divorce, but now it's run into you and you've got a choice to make. You might have came from generations of sickness, but now it's run into you and you've got a choice to make. You might have came from generations of passive observation of other people's spirituality, but it's run into you, friend, and you got a choice to make. Will my injury be an avenue of God's redemptive work? For 400 years, the Hebrew children had been robbed of the worship of the one true God. They were enslaved under the idolatry of an Egyptian system. And when Moses stands before Pharaoh, he says, God says, you will let my people go. They will come into the wilderness and they will worship me. I'm gonna challenge some of you today, so hear my heart. Start tithing and get Egypt out of your money. Start celebrating and get Egypt out of your calendar. Start serving and get Egypt out of your schedule. Start entering into worship and get Egypt out of your affection because we can't afford to be discipled by Egypt when we're citizens of the kingdom. And Moses, the great deliverer of God's chosen people, four times stands before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. I'm declaring that over the Northwest. I'm declaring that over this city and over the cities of this region. I'm declaring, give up your dead. Give up those who are in bondage. Give up those who are in affliction. Give up those who are sick and poor and cursed and disturbed and mentally ill. Give them up that they may 
worship the true God, that they may serve the true God, that they may give in generosity to the true God, that God would take us out of Egypt and into promise. Let me in here. What I love about this story is that God gave to the Hebrew children what he promised to the patriarchs. Watch, watch. God in his brilliance and in his kindness is giving this church and this community an inheritance in a field that we didn't plow. But a praying grandma prayed for but a faithful great-grandfather laid down his life for. That somebody somewhere in this city got a hold of the hem of his garment and said, I'm not letting go until a cascading impact of blessing and resource hits my children's children. And we are those people. (laughs) There was an Abraham, there was an Isaac, there was a Jacob, and there is a promise. And we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Come on, would you stand with me as we close?